The Start On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Tuesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today we want to talk about giving thanks on the bus. There's a young Winnipeg man, an 18-year-old Winnipegger, who did just that. Got on a bus several times on Thanksgiving and asked people just to think about what they are grateful for. We're also going to tell you about a bride who went forward with her wedding pictures, even though her fiancé was killed in a car crash 10 months earlier, and the result of her pictures is quite touching. I'll review A Star is Born. I saw the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga movie over the weekend, and it is continuing to haunt me. I just can't shake it. And typically when that happens, that's a good thing for that film. The UN has issued a new report on global warming, and it's a life-or-death report. Details with the Prairie Climate Center's co-director. We'll hear from a Globe and Mail freelance writer who wrote a story where the headline is Goodbye Toronto, Hello Winnipeg. Are young people rethinking their big city dreams and coming back to the peg? And finally, Winnipeg Jets home opener is Tuesday night tonight. If you're not in Winnipeg, does that mean you can't celebrate? Have you uh, ever been on public transportation in other cities, like uh, subway in New York, commuter train uh, in particular, and had street performers get on board? Yeah, yeah. Right? And they conduct a little performance, dancing, singing, and then they pass the proverbial hat around. As a tourist, it usually, I I would say, is a a day brightener, but for some commuters, it it might be cringe-inducing because it's day after day after day. Well, yesterday... Brett Bailey took Thanksgiving to a whole new level of interaction here in Winnipeg. There was no juggling or breakdancing, just some words of thankfulness. And I'm going to hop on a bus and and, uh, try to inspire at least one person on each bus. That's the goal. Uh, I just want to come on and wish you guys a a weekend filled with happiness, love, and gratitude, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. That's all. Thank you, guys. So Brett spoke with the news, Richard and Julie, working on the holiday yesterday between 4 and 7. And the first question, obvious, why do this? Uh, Well, this idea really stemmed from um, me looking around on the bus one day and just thinking, wow, it kind of seems like we're all just going through the motions, going through our everyday life and not really taking a chance and uh, stepping back and having some perspective. And I really do believe there's so much to be thankful for. So on Thanksgiving, sort of in, in the spirit of that, I really wanted to make an impact in some people's lives and help them have that same revelation that I did on the bus that day. So, uh, Mr. Bailey, where did you go? I found a very common bus route, one that went downtown, and I, and I uh, picked a few different buses, got on. As soon as I did, I got everybody's attention and talked for about one minute and really just try to inspire them, try to, uh, you know, crack a few smiles, brighten their day. And I really just talked about gratitude and everything that we have to be thankful for in this world. So I sort of referenced it in the preamble there. The first thing I wondered was, how did that go over? Because not everyone is up for the pump up. Any negative responses, Brad? A mix of both. But, um, you know, my, my goal going into it was was just to get one person on each bus to show me a smile, show me some sign that, that it made an impact in their day. And I, there is a YouTube video of it. And I said that, I, you know, I believe in the probability that one person would be uh, positively affected. But there definitely were both sides of the spectrum. Uh, some people weren't too happy to be sort of preached out on the bus. But 
Um, no, honestly, I'm I'm happy with it. I was expecting honestly both sides, so uh, it turned out well for, uh, from my end. So often when we make a move to inspire others, these things flip around on us, and we are the ones that get inspired. Brett had at least one such interaction. Well, there is there is one man who actually I got a chance to speak with for about ten minutes, and he told me a pretty inspiring story about how he almost got killed uh, back in two thousand six, and he was you know addicted to some painkillers and and other things like that because of this accident, and he totally changed his life around. He there was just a moment in time where it just clicked, and he and he changed everything, and that was very inspiring for me to see someone who had been through all that but was still so happy and so grateful. So I guess the basic uh, concluding question would be this. Would you do this again? Absolutely. We'll definitely do something like this again because I, it just goes to show that, you know, taking a few hours out of my day to, to make other, other people's lives better is the most rewarding feeling of all time. And it has definitely made me want to do it again. So, yes. You can follow Brett Bailey on Instagram. It's Brett Bailey with two A's in the last name. I'm guessing somebody else must have jumped on Brett Bailey with one A. And uh, you can connect uh, with his YouTube channel via his Instagram account as well. I wonder if it's the preaching that would, like, not the preaching. I know that's not what he was trying to do. Is it the topic that would generate the various responses or just the fact that people aren't used to being approached, period, in so many environments. Like I used to work at 201 Portage where Global News Studios are. We're on the 30th floor. Get in the elevator all the time with 15, 12 people and nobody looks at each other. Nobody talks to each other, right? Like we all just stare at the wall. And so I kind of like on a pretty regular basis would just start chatting with somebody. (laughs) You? I know, shocker. But I just, I was amazed at how often people, even if you just said something like, I really like those shoes or, oh, is it cold enough out there for that coat today? Like, do you need that? And it just, it's, there's all, quite too often, there's a pause, like, are you talking to me right now? Like, why people are you are talking taking aback, to me? are right? So I think, like, I, I wonder, A, would his topic have been kind of off-putting or not? I would have enjoyed it. I think that's a great idea. Shake it up, man. I can remember distinctly being on a bus in Vancouver one day, looking around, I think it was Friday, rush hour, and I was on my way to go and see some friends of mine. I was looking around and I go, holy crow, all these people look really sad sitting on the sitting on the bus heading home I'm sure after a very long work day uh, but it really struck me as to how sullen and how quiet and how maybe introspective people were what? and just kind of just sitting there and yeah it would have been it would have been very surprising to have this young man come on the on the bus and and start trying to cheer you up or trying to Help you celebrate a holiday like sure. yesterday. But then people are also too often on their iPhones, right? You walk in, how many times do you walk into a room or a bus or again, the elevator analogy and everyone just has their head down anyway. Yeah. So you'd have to like wave your hands to get their attention first. They wouldn't even see that. Then you'd probably have to shout. Then they'd think, who is this? Who's the shouter? Yeah, like now what's happening? Lunatic. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what he was doing on the video. Can I have everyone's attention, please? And my, just watching the video, I know that my initial reaction would be, who is this guy? What what are, you, what are you doing? But after listening to what he had to say and seeing the fact that this is an 18-year-old Winnipegger who has clear enthusiasm not just for life but for his city as well and wants to spread that, uh, it gives me hope. You know, it's kind of inspiring to see what he was doing, even if it, it's only for a minute. It's a one-minute pitch. 
So if you the do end up being annoyed by it, yeah. on the bus. If you end up being annoyed for 60 seconds, that's not the end of the world. And if you can take something away from what this young man has to say, then great. How about even just the courage to stand up and do it in the first place? You might not have liked what he said, but man, that's like, I, even when I'm supposed to speak at an event and it's your job to get up there and say, okay, excuse me, everybody, you got five minutes to grab your drinks and then we're going to get things rolling tonight. It, like the number of eye rolls just because you say the bar's closing, right? Let even, alone- yes, even, even when people <laughs> No, there's a speaker involved. Right. Individuals have a like hard time being quiet. The speech um, and they don't want to do it. You knew there was going to be more than just beverages and food involved tonight, right? <laughs> right. You understand that? Yeah. Sorry for interrupting your evening, but we, we've got a message that we want to share with you tonight. We're at the speech portion of the evening. <laughs> That's right there in your program. <laughs> Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Braun is here. And here is the headline. A bride takes her wedding day photos 10 months after her fiancé was killed in a car crash. This is a story at globalnews.ca. What's going on here, Loren? Yeah, so uh, this woman named Jessica was to marry Kendall, a volunteer firefighter and a salesman, uh, this fall, and he died in a car crash uh, 10 months ago. And so a couple, I'm trying to figure out the date exactly, but September 29th, I think, was the the date, and um, she decided to go ahead with not the wedding, obviously, because she couldn't, but the pictures. And so if you go to globalnews.ca and cgob.com, we've got the story up on there, and she went, she put a dress on, um, she got her kids out. She got the, the fiance, the deceased fiance's parents in some of the photos. And there's even one of them where I, they, they managed to superimpose the right word, like where you can kind of see him in the background. So she does sort of have a wedding photo for him. And they even took it as far as to, to me, it looked like more like a celebration of life where, um, they ended up at his, uh, grave site. And took photos there and then released the lantern. And there's a couple shots of her praying over his stone. And so it's an interesting conversation about how we grieve now and how we celebrate both life and death and and what we do with that. The pictures are amazing. And I should I stand corrected. Sorry, I thought they were her kids, but they're her nieces and nephews that were in the photo. And so super emotional to look at. I know a lot of people were chatting about it on Facebook, but it got us talking about... Um, what is the level of appropriateness or is that even the right word? Do we, do we have to move on from what is allowed or, or not allowed when it comes to funerals and, and how we do things? Well, you know, I think it's personal choice. You know, I, I think this is one of those types of situations where uh, no one's right and no one's wrong because uh, even though it might seem uh, odd or it might seem inappropriate to one person, another might say, wow. What an incredible legacy, what incredible loyalty, and what an incredible everlasting love story we've just seen unfold here. And I think it uh, allowed, she talked about in the article about she didn't want to cancel the booking and she contacted her bridesmaid party, her bridesmaids in the wedding party to say, I'm going to still do this. She didn't know they were going to show up. So they showed up all dressed. Uh, His parents showed up, her parents showed up. And so I think for them, it probably turned into potentially a super cathartic moment. Yeah, you know, uh, when my mom passed away over 15 years ago, her funeral, so to speak, was, you know, completely different than anything I'd ever been to before. Uh, My dad, who uh, my mom and dad's divorced years before my mom passed away, my dad actually, because at that time was the best public speaker I knew, hosted the event 
and there was no clergy and my mom still has not been interned anywhere. We just pass her, her urn around from house to house. And there are a lot of people who think that's kind of weird, but that's well, in essence what my mom. Well, there used to be rules for that, right? Like, right. But what's a rule now when it's right. your left exactly. one? Like, exactly. Yeah. And, and in essence, it's what my mom always wanted. She said, I had five children. I'll spend two months with each of you and then <laughs> two months goal. on holidays. And we all kind of looked at each other like that ain't happening, but uh, here we are. Where does she where does she, yeah, where's she going holiday? She goes, oh, yeah, there's Captain no holiday. <laughs> she misses out on the holiday. Do you not send her with Captain Obvious somewhere? No, 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 no. Brian, have you seen the pictures on this article? Uh, I, I, I've only seen, I saw the first one with like the ghost guy in there and I, I don't really need to see the rest of them. Okay. Yeah, that's all right. Do you have well, whatever gets, them, gets the family through their hard time, I guess is fine, just fine with me. Yeah, I uh, I have to admit, Greg, working with you the last couple of years, you've, you've managed to stamp out a lot of the cynicism that uh, used to reside quite firmly in me. Damn and it, when Greg. I see, when I see this first picture with her, as Loren pointed out, the superimposed sort of ghostly image of her fiancé, this is quite touching to me, and I, it actually almost brought a tear to my eye. But as I flip through the pictures, there's another one here where she is uh, she's sort of kneeling uh, upon his his grave, and in, in her wedding dress, and it's a lovely picture, but at the same time, I think th- that's where the cynic in me comes out, because I think this is awfully staged, and it just seems, in this day and age where everything is about getting your picture taken and getting mm. on social media, that's where that part of me comes out and says, okay, right. is this too, is that moment too far? Like the one, the, the picture where you, it's you and your fiance, that's nice, but, but does it look get at a, how, how, look at, look at me, how much grief I have. But that's does it get a conversation growing, going about, you know, the idea that to stop making this gravesite or cemetery is a taboo place. Like we often with my grandmother, We'll go to, she's buried in St. Rose de Lac, and we'll go up and, and we'll talk to her and we'll sit down and it becomes a whole thing. And so I'd very much like my kids to know that if I were to pass away and say that's what we choose to do with my remains, you can come and make it a thing where like, I'm not, yes, you can't see me and you, I'm not, I'm not going to talk back, but I'm there in some way. And I think it opens up that idea that it makes the cemetery a more inviting place, maybe. Maybe you could get like a Loren McNabb highlight reel TV screen. <laughs> They're doing that. They're doing hey, that. Don't joke. Maybe I will. They are. They have headstones with. Uh, slideshows with LED screens embedded in them, so that that what is, is a thing. What is the long-term plan with that? What, what do you mean? I don't know. I see headstones out there that are 150 years old. Yeah. Who's going to keep up with this LED screen? You, you're going to take care of that. Oh. I just got a text message <laughs> at 780-6868 talking about funerals and death. I was at the graveside to visit my father's grave a couple of years ago, and a family was there visiting their loved one, and they were having a picnic at the graveside. Interesting. Visiting. I like that. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're going to do. Come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here, come on, here we go. Jack, Jack, Jack. Look at me. All you gotta do is trust me. That's all you gotta do. Macklin McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. That's a clip from A Star is Born, which did very well at the box office over the weekend. It made $42 million, finished second place behind Venom, which made $80 million. So my prediction that Venom would flop was clearly wrong, but A Star is Born still did very well. 
This is the movie starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. It's a remake of a remake of a remake. First one came out in 37, then 1954 with Judy Garland, then again in 76 with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And in this one, Cooper plays veteran singer Jackson Maine, and he discovers a struggling artist named Allie, who is played by Lady Gaga. And he falls for her, and he gives her a boost because she wants to be a performer, but she's been told she's not pretty enough to do it. And he says, that's a bunch of hogwash, and he brings her on stage and basically launches her career. And I normally don't go see movies like this. Not that I don't like them. I like to go see big spectacles at the movie. Loud, explosions. So you'd watch this at home? Yeah. Right? You'd choose to be on the couch to watch this kind of movie? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, And I say that because when I say this movie was slow... That's maybe slow for somebody like me. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go to see it. I did think it was a bit of a drag, but you got, do you ever watch a movie and it kind of sticks with you? Like you find yourself, you just can't shake it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening with this movie. It was the first thing I thought of when I got up because... And what did you think about? The, just the songs, the storyline, like what was in your head? Just the... Bradley Cooper has crafted a really beautiful and sad story that has it has a lot of happiness and sadness great success great tragedy uh, all kinds of things to say about addiction problems about the music industry in general about how poisonous it can be it's sort of a cautionary tale Uh, there's a touching family story with him and his brother there's a lot of stuff at play and all of the performances were so touching i think that's what got me is that all the talk right now is on lady gaga and how excellent she is and believe me she is but Bradley Cooper, his performance is what really is kind of haunting me right now. Your description of it has me emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so, was listening to a, a conversation with Kelly Clarkson the other day about how she broke down the fir- like after she realized she'd gone to get milk and that life was never going to be the same for her again because she couldn't get out of the store without talking to 100 people. And she sat in her garage and cried for three hours the whole cautionary tale of careful what you wish for you just might get it so i would give this four couch cushions out of five it is really good and you will be shocked if this is not nominated for a whole bunch of oscars Headline at globalnews.ca. New UN report on climate change carries life or death warning. A stark warning from the United Nations panel on climate. Unprecedented changes are needed across the world to prevent a temperature rise, which would increase heat waves, flooding, drought and the loss of species. The pledges that governments have made over the last three years are not enough to keep warming below 1.5 degrees C, even with ambitious and very challenging efforts after 2030. The preferred 1.5 degree target was set at the 2015 Paris Agreement. But the report suggests the world is off track and heading towards three degrees instead. That would mean huge changes for the world, including coral reefs being virtually wiped out and more deadly wildfires as seen in Europe this summer. So it sounds incredibly dire, and this warning comes with a deadline, about 12 years to get that temperature down overall. Ian Morrow is with the University of Winnipeg Prairie Climate Centre and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Ian. Hello. So how bad is it, 12 years, and we're talking about drastically reducing the, the temperatures that we're putting out there? 
Well, I think that uh, the UN report is definitely setting a new timeline for our human trajectory. And, you know, we've come off of Thanksgiving where we've been sitting around with our families, enjoying food, enjoying company, enjoying the stability of what modern life provides. And when we think about a future where the UN is warning that the warming could destabilize the very way in which our economies operate, the very way in which we get food from the land, the way in which we procure water, very much the essential ingredients of life, you know, they're going to be challenged, they're going to be stressed, and the report is saying, you know, yes, we've made these kinds of big agreements at the Paris Accord, but if we're not meeting our targets, then we're going to blow past them, and if we blow past them, we really are putting the risk of ecosystems on the line, but that ultimately means our human communities and families. Ian, you mentioned water, and there is some thinking out there that our next wars, our next great war on this planet will be fought over water. Well, obviously, water is an essential ingredient of life. You know, Indigenous communities have been telling us water is life forever. You know, I think the scientists and, you know, people who, you know, consume water were mostly made up of water. If we don't have water, we literally die. And when we look at the report, it's actually suggesting that... um, 1.5 is this kind of ambitious target that we set. And when they say 1.5, that's that's the amount of warming since we've industrialized. So we've gone up a degree Celsius already, and you can see the kind of gnarly things that have happened, forest fires, you know, the increase of extreme storms and floods. You know, these things have happened with one degree. And if we go up another half degree, and they're saying that's the safe upper limit, uh, that will kind of curtail the worst of the worst. But we're going to overshoot that by potentially three degrees is, is what the science is saying. And so if we were to go that high, you know, that, that will put our water uh, resources at stress. And, and what the report is saying is that if we curtail at 1.5 and don't go to two degrees, that will put about 50% less stress on water resources. And so that half a degree, it may sound like not a lot, but when we talk about global water resources, they're saying that half a degree could reduce water stress for 50% of global populations. And so that's why it's absolutely critical that we try and realize these targets. So the fact that temperature would likely to rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius between 2030 and 2052, a lot of people in Winnipeg probably thinking, well, I'm all all on board with rising temperatures. Why is this bad? Well, there's a number of things. You know, when we talk about uh, these kinds of temperature increases, those are global mean temperature increases from the kind of pre-industrial times, right? So if we go up to 1.5 or we go to 2 degrees, that actually translates to a tremendous amount of warming on the prairies. Uh, We're actually an interior continental climate. And so when we talk about drought and we talk about water stress, we're going to get hit hard here uh, kind of first and and, and fastest. Um, When we talk about forest fires, you know, you see the fires that have happened in in BC and Alberta over the past couple of years. These are going to, and and in Manitoba, northern Manitoba, this is going to tear through our, our, our communities. And so, you know, when we think about, you know, how warmer winters and, and, you know, having a a nicer kind of environment, that comes with a tremendous cost. And I'm not just talking about 
you know, often far off places. We're talking about the actual kind of fabric of our society. And so, you know, the, the, the actual cost to our economies, we're, we're talking, this report in the background is talking about a full meltdown of our economic systems. And so you're not going to be going to Mexico. You're not going to be, you know, shopping the way that you used to or having the vehicles that you used to have. This is, this is a serious existential threat. And I don't say that in some sort of fear-mongering way. It, it, it is just what the science is saying. And so we have to change our mindset around this. This isn't about, oh, it's a nicer, you know, temperature outside. This is, this is about our kids and our grandkids and the viability of life on the planet. So we just have uh, 30 seconds left, Ian, uh, with the Prairie Climate Centre. If I'm, I'm at home in Winnipeg hearing this now, we always look at the industry, like the ones who are the big emitters of pollution, all the rest. Are there two quick things I could do to change my habits now that might help uh, in the long term if we were all to do it? Well, I think we take the deep dive in our own personal lives. You know, I winter bike and, you know, people can figure out how to make their homes more energy efficient. Our homes are our, 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 our main environment. So think about your house, think about what you can do, but also challenge the government to do better. You know, when we talk about the carbon tax being lost in the province, when we talk about the battle over whether or not we're going to do something or not, the time for that kind of debate is over. We have to take bold action. And so we have to hold ourselves accountable, but we also have to hold our elected officials accountable to ensure that we make a system and a society that is able to buffer the change. And to kind of learn more, I would suggest people go to our Climate Atlas. It's called climateatlas.ca, and you can look at climate futures for Canada. You can look at climate futures for Winnipeg and understand, you know, that this will bring a tremendous amount of change. The heat waves, you know, that we could get here in Winnipeg that will affect elderly and vulnerable populations and ultimately everybody. That's the stuff that we're talking about. Ian Morrow, University of Winnipeg Prairie Climate Centre. We have to leave it there. We are out of time. But thank you so much for joining this morning. Again, the headline, New UN Report on Climate Change Carries Life or Death Warning. Loren, we're going to play a piece of Winnipeg Jets audio. What's that all about? Well, if you've ever lived anywhere else uh, in this world, which many of us have, and you're a fan of the Winnipeg Jets, then it's really a tribute to the Jets on home opener tonight. Uh, Jets playing in Winnipeg for the first time this season. And it's about people from all over Canada, what, where they're watching the Jets from tonight. So it's kind of interesting because not everybody lives here, but lots of people watch it from all over the world. Where are you wearing your Jets? Yeah. And it goes a long way to celebrating where we're from. And I know for me, when I was away, as they might say in Newfoundland, when I was living away in the Okanagan and in Calgary, that was how I found new friends quite often, was by wearing my Jets gear. And our next guest... Knows maybe a thing or two about that, the idea of living away, living elsewhere, and then coming back to Winnipeg. Brian Borzakowski is a freelance writer with the Globe and Mail, New York Times, amongst others. Brian, great article in this weekend's uh, Globe and Mail, and the headline is Goodbye, Toronto, Hello, Winnipeg. Are Canada's young giving up their big city dreams? I know typically you don't write the headline, but (laughs) if if you did write the headline, does does that accurately depict what you're trying to convey in in, in this article? I would would say yes. Uh, maybe rethink the big city dream. I mean, you can have a great dream and life in Winnipeg and other smaller centers, but uh, it's about rethinking it. I mean, I lived in Toronto for uh, for about 16 years and I moved back a year ago. So I don't actually apply to the story that I wrote exactly because I built up a career and friends and all sorts of stuff. 
But you know, I saw how the how crazy the housing prices went. It was getting expensive to live there. We didn't really move back for financial reasons. We actually cashed out at a good time in the market, and it helped us come back. But a lot of friends and people I know that are younger are sort of wondering. Should I make the move to Toronto? I mean, it is expensive. Can I ever get in the housing market? Can I even afford to live there? I mean, even rents have gone sky high. So I think the you know I left when I was 22 because I wanted to go to Toronto. That was always the plan. Center of Journalism for Canada. Um, would I have done the same if I was 22 now? It's hard to say. It's a different story today. It's interesting because we've talked for decades, I think, about that migration outward, people going to Calgary, people going to Toronto. And I don't know if the numbers show that people who are now in those markets are actually coming back or if it's more just an anecdotal thing where we're hearing the idea that you might be in Toronto or Vancouver and thinking to yourself like, okay, I like my job here, but I can't afford a house here. Or if I want to have a family, how do I get the house, the family, the two cars and all the rest? So how much is just the economics of it? Is it, is it about more pride and coming back to Winnipeg or is it about the economy? Right. It's it's uh, I guess a couple of things are going on here. Uh, first of all, there isn't really great data to say that people are moving back because prices are high. I think we'll see that come out. I think more researchers are going to look at that because this is still a relatively new phenomenon. Like the, the housing market started to skyrocket in Toronto, Vancouver, really over the last five or six years. So this isn't something that the census data has captured kind of over the last 10 or 15 years. So we'll see what the census data comes out next time. I think researchers will look into this. But you know people who have moved back. My brother partly moved back because of that reason. It was just hard to get a house here. They liked Winnipeg as well. So, you know, I think there's economic reasons for sure. People are rethinking, um, how am I going to get that house? Do I need to get it in Toronto? Uh, there's also just the um, idea of work from anywhere. I mean, a lot of companies now allow you to work from different places. You can start businesses um, because... Because, you know, because of technology and you can just travel anywhere. I moved back in part because, you know, my wife is a teacher. She can work from anywhere. I can work from anywhere. Toronto's a two-hour flight. It would be different if I lived maybe somewhere out west. So it's really easy to get back and forth between here and Toronto. Um, So it just kind of all added up where it made sense, where I wasn't giving up kind of the things that I had in Toronto, at least, you know, work-wise. And... Um, and I could still have that kind of life here. And I do find that when I left Winnipeg, it was different than it is today. I mean, you're talking about the Jets. Uh, I'm going to the game today. Having the Jets there, it seems weird that it's, you know, a hockey team is a big deal for the city. But it really is. And it's been really fun to go to the games. And that's been a really big highlight of coming back. It's just, just an energy in the city um, that wasn't there when I left. I wanted to get out. I had to get out. Um, but... I like being back, and I know that you know other people don't want to leave because that energy is there, because it's better than it was when I was 20. So you left Winnipeg when you were 22, you say? 22, and yeah. And when did you come back? I came back about, about just over a year ago. And so how old are you now? I'm 38. So, okay, yeah. so you were gone a while then. I was gone a while, built a great life in Toronto. I like Toronto. I miss Toronto in some ways. Um, so it wasn't a matter of, you know, I hate it here, I got to get out. Um, it just, you know, I have three kids. After our third kid was born, uh, we thought it'd be nice to have parents around. Uh, be nice to have maybe a little bit of a quieter life. Um, we have just a lot of good friends here. We have a cottage in Winnipeg Beach, so we kind of maintained friendships over the years because we'd come back. Um, and and it just, you know, Winnipeg, they say it's a good place to raise a family, but it's true. It's a great place. And, and that's kind of I never thought we'd move back, but it kind of pushed it all over the edge. And plus the economics of it, too. I mean, we were 
it's just expensive. And when we saw the housing prices kind of rise and thought, hmm, maybe we could uh, sell this house and buy a cheaper one here and plow some of that into our RSPs, it just started, I don't know, something different started happening and priorities change. The reputation, when you're in Winnipeg, I think the reputation living here has changed. I think it's the image is better. I think the feeling, you mentioned the vibe, but I'm curious, you know, I lived in Toronto up until 2010 and moved back here mm-hmm. and, and with my husband, we have a family, but I don't know, I, I when I said I, I want to live in Winnipeg that, or in Manitoba, the reaction from some of my Toronto friends was like, really? Why? And I'm curious now if that's shifted at all and what your experience might have been or what you heard from the people you talked to in your story, if they still got that, really? Like you're going <laughs> to, you're choosing Winnipeg over Vancouver or Toronto? We did. There was some of that, but most of our friends understood uh, the importance of being near family um, and that they probably would have made a similar choice. And we heard from a lot of Winnipeggers who wish they could move back. Partly they can't because of jobs. So if you, it is, you know, it is different. The job market is clearly different. If you have a, a good kind of full-time nine to five office job that you don't think you can get here, then it's hard to leave. Um, also their spouses aren't from Winnipeg. So to the spouses, it seems like a bit of a crazier idea. My wife is from Winnipeg. So the uh, leap wasn't that great. Um, and, uh, and so we got some of that, but, but I, a lot of people were supportive and we've actually had a lot of friends come visit us, which uh, we're happy about. I mean, just one thing about the article, just, just that back there for one second. I mean, the headline was Winnipeg, but it's really about all kind of smaller cities. It's not just about Winnipeg. It's about people moving back to Halifax or, you know, even smaller cities in BC, or we see a lot of people moving to Hamilton, um, to get out of kind of Toronto. Um, and, and so it's kind of about all that, leaving those big cities. And this also goes for like New York, London, and those places. Well, I know I saw it when I lived in the Okanagan in the first real ramp up of housing prices in Vancouver in the late 90s. There were a lot of people that were actually commuting from the Okanagan to Vancouver. They would do the four-day work week or the three-day work week, and they'd go back and forth because the Okanagan offered a lower cost of living to a certain extent. And when I lived in, in Alberta, their Saskatchewan got really aggressive and had billboards all over Edmonton and Calgary saying basically, come back home. Like things are different now. And I think Manitoba could take a page. I hate when I suggest <laughs> we take a page out of Saskatchewan's book. I seem to be doing it more often. But this is this is really something I think that, that Winnipeg should consider is reaching out to expats. I agree. I actually have totally. And I always wondered why they didn't. I mean, I think there should be a coming home campaign because you can feel feel it when we said we wanted to leave people wanted to come back and a lot of there were a lot of talk I wish I could do this I wish I could do this if there was a way that perhaps um, the city could think of uh, you know a way to make it more feasible I, I don't know how but maybe even promote just um, the ease of flights or the or or you know s- maybe different workspaces that they have here. Just a way that you can say, I could still do what I'm doing in Toronto or Vancouver, but I can do it from here. And this guy in the, David Daniel Moscovich, who I interviewed in the story, he, he had a life in Vancouver. He's setting up a business there. He still goes back a lot, but is now based out of Winnipeg. Um, we learned how to make it work because we want to be here, but I think the city could definitely turn this into something, uh, you know, a bigger deal, put some literature around it, get people to figure out how to do this. We've got all sorts of co-op spaces downtown, I think, for people to like have your office or your home, your, your home away from home. And I compare notes with my brother all the time because he's house hunting in Calgary and what you can get for 300000 there versus here or <laughs> right. what a million gets you there versus you a million a here. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> 
and how many people are leaving Vancouver, by the way? Do you know? There was, in the story, there was, oh, I have a number there, but I uh, I don't know it offhand, but it was like, there was, in, in the last census, I think there was something like 15,000. They use this net migration number, Stats Canada, where... It's, it doesn't really break it down. So basically, people leaving Vancouver to go to other places in the province. So what that about is one hundred forty thousand within British Columbia. Is that right? Oh, it's uh, like Toronto. Pardon me. Toronto yeah, that, was yeah. hundred minus one hundred and forty-two thousand. Right, and, and Vancouver is minus eighteen. 000. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of lot of in Ontario, but I think a lot of those people are moving to Hamilton, to Vaughan, to places outside of Toronto, still within the GTA. So the stats aren't there saying all these people are leaving. BC to come back to Winnipeg or Halifax. I think that will come out um, because I think people will be watching this. This is a good kind of study to see what happens when housing prices hit a inflection point. But um, the data is not quite there yet to say that this is happening, um, which is, but the, all the academics I spoke to, spoke to and the researchers said, anecdotally, they see it happening. This is happening. And they were going to start researching this to see if they can put some data behind it. I know I always used to say to, to people that I knew in Vancouver that lived outside of the Kitsilano, the downtown area, it's like, you don't live in Vancouver. You work and sleep in Vancouver. You live in Abbotsford, or you live, yeah, and, and and that can be a grind, right? Because you move somewhere to take advantage of its natural beauty and its attributes, and because you've got to work so hard, you never get an opportunity to enjoy it. And and that's the difference between there and here for a lot of folks. I think so. I mean, when we lived in Toronto, we had a house. Um, fortunately, we had it within Toronto, and I work from home, so I didn't uh, really have to travel downtown that often. When I did, it was a subway ride. But a lot of people are moving out to these suburbs and other cities where they are commuting for an hour one way. And, and, and you know, that, when you think of that, uh, makes sense maybe to move back to Winnipeg where you have friends and family than moving somewhere else, um, you know, and commuting that much. I mean, that you're not with your family that time, either, you know, when you're doing that. So I think people, uh, millennials and, and anyone really, I think there's just going to be a lot more choices. The, sort of the idea of I got to be in Toronto or I got to be in Vancouver or New York and stay there. I think that idea is changing. So I just think the thought process is going to be different for people who are looking for careers and, and moving out. Brian Borzakowski, freelancer with the Globe and Mail. The headline is Goodbye Toronto. Hello Winnipeg. Are Canada's young giving up their big city dreams? If you'd like to read the article, I've linked it to the 680 CJOB Instagram story. Brian, thanks so much for the visit. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. like the jet season all starts tonight i know they've already had a couple games but when it's the home opener you yeah it feels like a the beginning now for sure and you know those first two games were like even steven right they won 5-1 in st louis and then went to dallas and lost 5-1 so they've scored six goals given up six goals they're one and one and so sort of a fresh start and opportunity to launch things off last year it was the third game of the season that really was the pivotal game a lot of people feel in terms of getting their season turned around they got hammered at home by Toronto in the home opener and then went to Calgary on this following Saturday night and got smoked by the Flames and then went to Edmonton and uh, scored a couple games. Nikolai Ehlers had a huge game and a lot of people feel as though that turned the Jets season around very early. Otherwise, things could have gotten away from them big time. Well, I'll be watching from home tonight, but the headline on globalnews.ca is where in the world do you cheer for the Winnipeg Jets? And it's a video tweeted out by a Winnipegger, and it's a message basically to the team and other Jets fans out there about, you know, you don't have to be in Winnipeg or in Manitoba to watch that game tonight, and we know many don't. So he tweeted out, where do you watch the Jets from? And this is was the response he got. 
Winnipeg Jets. We just wanted to wish you good luck this season. From all your fans in Toronto, Ontario. Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Sydney, Australia. Brampton, Ontario. Gimli, Manitoba. London, England. Albuquerque, New Mexico. Stratford, Ontario. San Jose, California. The village of Parktail. Adelaide, South Australia. Scarborough, Ontario. Petrified Forest, Arizona. Incheon, South Korea. Vancouver, BC. Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Atlanta, Georgia. Caledon, Ontario. Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Boulder City, Nevada. Hamilton, Ontario. Kelowna, British Columbia. Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Chrome, Saskatchewan. Krefeld, Germany. Las Vegas, Nevada. Winnipeg, Manitoba. Go Jets, go! Go Jets, go! Go Jets, go! That's awesome. It's commitment. And if you've ever lived overseas, so uh, the Jets weren't around when I was in Israel, but the Olympics were in Calgary. And so we would get up at two or three or four <laughs> in the morning to go watch uh, that game. Or sometimes it would work out to be more like a nine or 10 p.m., depending on the hours. But it's if you are if you're in a different time zone and you like this team, you know, we're kind of in that central zone that's hard to follow sometimes. Well, Chuck LaFleche uh, was in Europe for the last couple of weeks. My buddy uh, Chuck that uh, a lot of people know here on 680 CJOB, he was in Scotland last weekend for the Blue Bombers game and he was up texting me. I'm listening uh, on the app to cjob.com at, at you know one o'clock in the morning and I know my dad will be watching in Arizona tonight. Scott Mortland in San Diego. My buddy Jared in Calgary. John will be watching in, in Okanagan and so you know like people all over. David uh, I think uh, Danny Graves is mm-hmm. in that video uh, from Toronto, we uh, from the Watchmen, and we spoke to him about uh, his pub, the the the, the hotel, right in yeah. uh, Toronto, and uh, that's kind of the unofficial. Uh, gathering spot for Winnipeg Jets fans in that part of Toronto. Well, we heard some people in there. We heard uh, one from England. So keep in mind that uh, in England right now, it's 3.10 p.m. Mm-hmm. So the game starts at 7.30 tonight. 7 o'clock. So it'll be, what, uh, 2 in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be uh, 1 in the morning there. And uh, then in Germany, it'll be 2 in the morning. And uh, for the person who said they were in Adelaide, Australia, it's 12.40 a.m. there right now. So I guess it'll be like 10 in the morning. Perfect excuse not to go into work. Yeah. I would agree. Well, we've talked to someone from, at the station who watches from China, right? And I think it works out that it's their morning breakfast when they were watching during the playoff <laughs> run. But I also am curious just to see, like, you know, um, what we're going to see downtown tonight in terms of that party and, and the atmosphere down there. When coming off that whiteout atmosphere, you know, d- does it extend into the new season or does it all start again? Like, what will be the mood? I think it starts again. Starts again. I think there's a little apprehension for some folks. I want to pick off from, from the party. Yeah, I want like 20,000 people downtown I know, tonight. white out party every night. Uh, I think we learned during the playoffs that there was a little bit of fatigue setting in by the third round. It's like, you got to be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. Because playoff tickets are expensive. They play every other night. And so you want to watch every other game on TV and you want to be either downtown or at the game when they're home. And it is exhausting. So when this team does go on that run eventually for a, then wins the Stanley Cup. There's a bold prediction. Uh, it, it will be exhausting not only emotionally, physically, but financially. It'll it'll really be overwhelming. And then when it happens, oh my gosh, 
Like Mark Shifley's done a video about what it would, might be like during the Stanley Cup final in Winnipeg. He says, I can't even imagine It'll what it would be like. It'll be insanity. Um, how did you feel watching, or what? If you, I don't know if you watched the game on Saturday. I was at Oktoberfest at Club Regent Event Center. We we teed that up on Friday, and they had the game on the big screen in the event center. So that was cool, but at the same time, kind of not cool. Right. Uh, the score was 2-1, and then suddenly it's like, oh, Dallas scored again. Oh, they scored again. Ah, yeah, power is... play. Their, their power play is really good. And I mentioned on the season preview with Christian O'Mell on the, on the CJB Sports Show, my, my biggest concern is... Is the the Jets penalty killing that 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 is one place where they need to be better and plain and simple? I think I said it on this program as well. You know how Connor Hellebuck goes, so go the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, there's going to be no shortage of goals typically for them to only have one goal on Saturday night. That's going to be an anomaly. Uh, Hellebuck, uh, you know, you can't hang too many of the goals on him. That 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 Dallas power play, boy, oh boy. There's one team that's got more firepower on the Jets than the Jets on the power play. It might be Dallas. One thing I've wanted to ask you, Greg: Did the Jets lose anybody in the off season that uh, w- that could end up impacting their ability to get it done? Well, comparing it to their to their playoff team, absolutely. Uh, Paul Stastny went to Vegas. Yep. And so Stastny had an incredible impact in the playoffs and down the stretch. Uh, there is some feeling that they can replace him from within. And a lot of people saying, oh, he was just an addition. The Jets were playing on that same trajectory uh, when they acquired him. They were a first place team when they acquired him and ended up finishing second uh, by just a couple of points behind Nashville. So, uh, you know, there are... There are two sides to that conversation. He, he's the biggest name, and I think the Jets are finding now that they're they're trying to figure out who's going to be that second line center and creating that second line because they've almost got an overabundance of of talent up front. And, well, and Ehlers how do you, how is on do you, the fourth line, right? So yeah, keeps, he got he, a yeah, got a little bit of time. Are like, what is yeah. he going to move back up? Where is he going to go? Yeah, so, he did already Saturday night a yeah. little bit. So interchangeable parts. It's an incredible uh, embarrassment of riches at times, but that's going to be the challenge for Paul Maurice. Is is how do you get everybody the amount of ice time that they need to be successful? Well, and of course, it's early in the season, so the Jets have time to to figure things out. And I remember last year, I think it was by the fourth game, if I recall, I started, I'm pretty sure it was last year, where I started seeing people calling for, fire the coach! Oh, it was the first game. It was against, the first game! Against Toronto. <laughs> okay. Because they got lit up at home against the Leafs, and then they went to Calgary, and I think it was 6-3, if memory serves me, in the second game, they got lit up. And then, uh, like I said, they went into Edmonton and sort of turned things around. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an exciting season. But it's going to be a long grind because always in the background is going to be, Loren, exactly what you said, the memories of April and May and, and what could have been. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.